0: Good morning. If you have a Bible, why don't you open it up to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, which is the Sermon on the Mount, and we'll get rolling. If you weren't here last week, very quick introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount plays a pivotal part in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Matthew alone. It is almost absent from Luke, has almost a quarter of the size of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, and it occurs not at all in Mark or John. So while the Sermon on the Mount is of pivotal importance in Luke, it appears almost nowhere else in the Gospel accounts. And the reason that it occurs so powerfully in Matthew is because Matthew was writing specifically to a Jewish audience. And what Matthew does is use the Sermon on the Mount to make the Jew of that time confront themselves with God's law. Now, when we say law we mean two things. First of all, law means all of the Old Testament commandments. So the Ten Commandments and all the other ones, about somewhere around 200 to 250 in there, depending on how you number them. So there's all these commandments in the Old Testament, and that is the law. Those are the laws of God. But when we also say law, we also mean a salvific system, A salvific system that relies on a process called works righteousness. Now when I say works righteousness, what I mean by this, and and, and to be clear, works righteousness is the way that 99% of the people who've ever lived on the planet think about how to relate to God. In essence, work righteousness says, be a good person, do good things, do the best you can, and you'll get into heaven because God will see that you tried. That's works righteousness. And what Jesus does is take the principles of works righteousness, use the law, and show how futile it is to try to come to God through works righteousness, through the law. The law cannot save us because, as Jesus is going to show us, it's way worse than we thought we were. It's way worse. Uh, This morning, the Sermon on the Mount is one of those sermons that nobody makes it through. It's meant to be something that you read and finish and go, I am in huge trouble. Because the points of the Sermon on the Mount are these. And this is why it's so popular. Number one, you are way worse than you thought you were. And number two, you didn't do anything good that you thought you did. You're like, I don't want to hear this sermon. But that's what Jesus uses it for. It uses it for the last sermon of the law, the last sermon of anyone who would think, I can get to God because I'm a good person. In fact, what Jesus comes around to say is, there are no good people. It's a heavy, heavy dose of reality. But in that, it's gracious. Your doctor is not being mean when he comes into your room and says you have cancer, okay? Okay. In our time, we want somebody to say, well, I've got some bad news I'm going to share with you over the course of six weeks so you can handle it. Sermon on the Mount knows you don't have any time. You need to hear the truth. You need to deal with the truth. This is it. Jesus sits down. He says, here's the deal. Because until you understand the power of the enemy against you, you won't appreciate victory. Until you understand the 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 absolute overwhelming force against you then your deliverer will not be precious to you you won't understand what he's done if you are in the ocean drowning and uh just because of the way the waves are you don't realize that you're only about 300 yards offshore that's one thing but if you're in the ocean drowning you realize that you're thousands of miles from the nearest land it's a whole different thing The Sermon on the Mount makes sure that we realize that there's no hope on the horizon for us in our own efforts. By our own ability, the Sermon on the Mount says, you are in way worse trouble than you ever thought you were. Uh, A few years ago, I mean, it was like 2005, something around there. um, A movie came out about the 1980 Olympic hockey team called Miracle. Did you see this movie, Miracle? Miracle. I remember when the movie came out, I was really excited. I love to go to movies, first of all, but then I love those kind of like sports we win movies. And you know how they're going to end, but you don't care. Everybody knew how Titanic was going to end, and they didn't care. But so you kind of know how it's all going to play out. You want to, So I went to go see it, and the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team, uh, you know, we win at the end. Everybody, the whole theater is chanting, chanting USA and all that stuff, you know. And we're finding the few people who didn't and hunting them down because of commies, obviously, and we're getting them. And So... But the thing about it was, I remember talking to some, some college students going, hey, have you seen Miracle? Oh, it's so good. And I'm going, yeah, I kind of want to see it. But I don't, you know I, I know, I know how it ends. I know it was a big deal. And I'm like, a big deal? Are you kidding me? This is how big a deal it was. I remember as a kid being outside playing and watching every parent from every house come running out and screaming at their kids, get inside right now. You've got to watch the end of this hockey game. Hockey in Texas, They're going, come in here and watch this game. So we were forced to sit down and watch the end of this game. And then I started to realize the reason that these students didn't get how big a deal this was is because they were not alive when there was a Soviet Union. Okay, everybody in the room feel a little bit older now? You're like, oh, college kids weren't even alive when there was a Russia. Like, I mean, come on. I mean, the movie tries to kind of set up what was going on in the United States at the time. I mean, we had, it's just impossible to get the the day-to-day understanding of what the Cold War was like, and then America's first real brush with Islamic terrorism, and the takeover of the embassy, and and then all the stuff with oil lines, and rationing oil, and, and gasoline lines. Like, students are surprised to hear that there's people in this room who had to sit through gasoline rationing. And they're like, what was that, the Great Depression? It's like, no, that was in the 70s. And they're like, wasn't that the Great Depression? Go to school! Go to school! But I don't think you can really appreciate that moment and what a big deal it was unless you could really put it all together. And that's what the Sermon on the Mount is going to do for us. It's going to help us see Jesus clearly because it's going to put us all together for it. Is it going to be fun? No, it's not fun. This is, these, these next few weeks are not going to be fun sermons, but they're illustrative. They're going to make the cross brighter for us. And that is great. When Jesus is asked about the law, he answers very specifically. When the, when, the, when the experts on the law come to him and they say, what is the most important commandment? Jesus answers them and he answers them uh, very consistent, consistently. And in Mark chapter 12, this is one of the ways he answered them by saying this. The most important of those laws is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now You know the second most important commandment is to love your neighbors yourself. But this is the number one commandment. Not even one of the Ten Commandments, by the way. But he says this is the most important thing. Not just That what you do honors God, but that what you feel and think honors God. You must honor God not only with your actions, but with your heart as well. And this is the division that so often strikes us, is that what Jesus says is it's not good enough to do the right stuff, you must also feel it. It must be consistent. What he's in fact saying is you can't just have perfection of action. You have to have perfection of intent and perfection of emotive intent. You must be perfect in your essence in order to please God. And that's precisely what the Sermon on the Mount does. It's what Jesus does. He tries to tell us that when judgment day happens, there'll be many people that come and say, but I did a lot of good stuff. And he'll say, but you didn't do it because you loved me. Or you were conflicted when you did it. And when you, when you did go do this right thing, what you really wanted to be doing was watching football. And they'll say, but isn't that good that I, that I did it anyway? And he'll say, no, because you should have done it because you loved me. Beyond any of your capacity to restrain. Perfection. God is perfect. Notice that what Jesus says is this. When he starts the whole thing, he begins with, Hear, O Israel, the Lord Our God, the Lord, is one. He begins by saying, you must know who this God is. It's not just enough to say, okay, I get there's a God and I'm going to do his stuff. You must know who he is. And God is perfect. He's perfect in every single way that we can think about. And because he's perfect in every single way we can think about, he requires perfection in every single way we can think about. If we are going to come to God under law, in other words, if we do not claim the salvation that's offered to us in Jesus Christ, that comes by grace, which means a gift, then we must understand God's standards. Good is not good. It's perfection or nothing. And so what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount is take some of these laws some of the commandments that Israel is very familiar with and show them exactly what perfection of action is coupled with perfection of intent and perfection of emotive intent. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 21, in Matthew five twenty-one, 21, he says this. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. One of the Ten Commandments, don't murder. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire as opposed to the hell of kittens. Or cupcakes, which are actually worse. I'll let you think about that. So watch Jesus use a one-to-one ratio. This isn't metaphor. This is not hyperbole. This is not Jesus using a figure of speech. He uses a one-to-one ratio. Same exact language. You have heard it said of old, you shall not murder And whoever murders is liable to judgment. He then turns around and says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother. And obviously he means unrighteously angry. Jesus becomes angry in his life, but it's righteous anger. Unrighteous anger is often us. When we react, when we don't get our way. When we are stunted or something like that. When we're frustrated with with what we wanted. That's unrighteous anger. But whoever is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Jesus is in effect saying anger is equivalent to murder. If you are unrighteously angry with someone, then you are guilty of murder in the heart. You can say, my actions, I was perfect. I never murdered anybody. And if you have in here, you need to come talk to Rick Duns about some things. But if, if you are guilty, if you've never murdered anybody... You say, my actions are perfect. And Jesus says, it's not enough. Are your intents perfect? Were your emotions perfect? Were you ever unrighteously angry with someone? I've never made it through a football game without being unrighteously angry at somebody. Jesus is saying, then you will not stand on the day of judgment based on your own good deeds because you won't have any. You'll say, I've never murdered anybody. And I'll say, you've murdered every quarterback that's ever played for Oklahoma in your heart. <laughs> Amen, Lord. Speak truly. Takes it further. The next one in, uh, in verse 27, he says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. One of the Ten Commandments. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The action of not cheating in your marriage or cheating with someone who is married, or cheating before you're married. You're like, what exactly? Sexual purity extends from the marriage bed to before marriage. I've never committed adultery. My actions are pure. But were your intents pure? The action without the intent is irrelevant. And this is what Jesus so powerfully critiques in the Pharisees and scribes. Now, if you're coming to the New Testament, the Pharisees and scribes were the professional religious people of Jesus' day. Okay? They looked perfect, they did everything right. The Apostle Paul, who is converted to Christianity and writes most of the New Testament, in fact, was a Pharisee. And about himself, he would say, when it comes to the things of the law, I was blameless. So Paul says, I did everything right. I did everything right. No one could look at me and point out a law I broke. But then Paul turns around later and says, but I consider that rubbish now because I see that what was inside of me was much worse. This is what Jesus so powerfully points out to the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, he says to them, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Now what's a hypocrite? Somebody that does one thing but inside their actions don't match Remember, they do two things that are totally counter- contradictory to one another contradictory to another one another you hypocrites you clean the outside of the cup and the plate but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence jesus is saying you can do all the right stuff but without your heart Matching those actions, it was worthless. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. Later on, or excuse me, uh, he continues on, "'Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, "'for you are like whitewashed tombs, "'which outwardly appear beautiful, "'but within are full of dead people's bones.'" and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Christ is saying that when someone under the works righteousness system shows up and says, I was a good person. I was better than most people I knew. I was 51% good. I was 87% good. I was a good person. What I'm going to do is show them not only is your estimation wrong but let me show you how wrong because what in fact he's going to show is that our hearts are so far from him that what we do with our actions become irrelevant this echoes a charge he made against israel long time ago regarding their obedience to the law in Isaiah chapter 29 this is what he says and the Lord said because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men He's saying they go to church they say the right stuff they they do the right stuff they follow the commandments But the reality is they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. The reality is they bring sacrifices, but I detest them. Later on, Jesus, I mean, uh, the Lord God, Jesus would say, I detest your holy days. I detest your sacrifices. I hate your festivals. Quit it. Because what was inside of them made everything they did irrelevant. Now, the whole purpose of all this is to bring forward to us a picture that Jesus puts forward that's incredibly difficult for the modern mind to grasp, but this is what it is. Jesus would call us the slaves of sin. That it was our master. That our hearts are bent toward it. And because of that, what comes out of us is Sinful what Christ is trying to put together is the idea that if we are going to be saved by works, if we're going to be saved by our own actions, then they must be in every way perfect. It's not enough just not to murder. You must also have never been angry with someone. It's not enough to just not have physically committed adultery. You better not have mentally committed adultery. They have to be perfect. No one meets that standard. In fact, those standards are put before us to show us exactly how far from them we are. Later on in the exact same Sermon on the Mount, if you want to flip a page to Matthew chapter 7, verse 16. Matthew 7, 16. Jesus will say this: You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? The answer is no. I know you're like, I don't know my agriculture that well. (laughs) So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. See, the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, this one is, this part is, you know, your favorite. You're way more sinful than you ever thought you were. You're like, well, I, I thought I was really sinful. Yeah, it's worse than that. You're sin slave. And the other side of the coin is, but I've done good stuff. No, you haven't. But That's next week, so come back. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll be here. <laughs> what I have to come to grips with from Jesus' teaching flow from this idea. Make the tree good. Uh, every healthy tree bears good fruit. diseased tree bears bad fruit. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus expands on this. And in Matthew 12, he says this, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. Same principle. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? And here's the line, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. This is one of the most convicting lines of scripture I've ever read. That's what I have to put before myself all the time. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. All my prejudices, all my uh, gross jokes, all my, uh, my profanities, all my indulgences in the carnal nature, all my rebellions against God, those come from within me. That's who I am. That's who the flesh is of Greg Pinkner. So what we like to do is pretend there's, we're a little egg and we're this good egg and everything's good and the external is evil. And we put shields up and we try to block the evil as much as we can. And every once in a while, one gets through. Oh, and now it got me. No, 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 no. no. It's all there. If it comes out of you, it's because it's there devil doesn't have to invent a sin and then somehow get you to mess up to get it in you it's already there out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks what he means is your evil actions and your evil thoughts come out because it's already there it's terrifying it's a terrifying picture that says we are more sinful than we thought think of all the thoughts that go through your head you know them and i do they don't come from without. What our culture tries to do, what you see all the time is somebody say, well, I did this horrible, evil thing. And then they use this line. I love this. You know, you'll watch the latest athlete or Hollywood or whoever get arrested or something, whatever it is, shooting puppies, I don't know, bad. And they'll say, that's not me. That's not who I am. The Bible says the exact opposite thing. Yes, it is. That's exactly who you are. You're just able to keep it within yourself most of the time. And this is why a works-based salvation can never save you. The Bible says many people are gonna show up on the day of judgment and go, Lord, didn't we do awesome things? And he'll go, no. And why do you call me Lord? Because I don't even know you. He says the good person out of his good treasure brings forth good and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. Now, if you hear this, the first thought going through your and my head is, well, then how could we possibly be saved? Because if we are this lost, how could we possibly be saved? God provides the answer through the gospel of salvation found in Christ. It's found in the first line we just looked at. Make the tree good and its fruit will be good. See, in the Old Testament, when you read prophecies about what was going to happen when Jesus finally showed up, it says things like this. I will give them a new heart and I will give them a new mind to love me and to obey me. Not they will earn these things, not they will accomplish these things in themselves, not I will show them how to finally live up to what I've asked them to do. It's I will give them these things. That is why the New Testament teaches a concept that is the opposite of salvation by works. It is the opposite of works righteousness called salvation by grace. And grace means unmerited favor. It means we don't deserve it. We can't earn it. It is beyond anything we could ask or imagine. And God says, I will give you salvation for free. And it will be just as if you lived a perfect life. What the Sermon on the Mount should do is make you realize the futility of approaching God at all in yourself. If you're here this morning and you're holding out any hope that you're going to meet God and you've been a good person and you've tried hard and God just loves everybody and everything's going to be okay, you are totally deceived. The Bible says no one. No one will meet God and not give account for what they've done. You may feel really bad about it. Uh, There's a band the kids are listening to these days uh, called Need to Breathe. And in one of their albums, the very last line of the whole album, thats a gospel album. The very last line of the whole album says, your sorrows can't save you. They won't answer for what you've done. In our culture, sorrows everything. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, God is just and he's perfectly just. So what does he do? How can a perfect God let in a perfect sinner? By the substitution of a perfect life. The reason Jesus Christ is the instrument of God's salvation is because Jesus appeared and did live the perfect life. Not only did he do everything perfectly, he felt everything perfectly, he thought everything perfectly, he was essentially perfect. Not essentially as in, well, mostly. I mean, in his essence, in his person, he's totally perfect and he sacrifices himself and God says, that life can count for your life and you can take your life And it can be his life. He will will die the death you deserve. He will take the punishment you should take. And you can live the reward that should be his alone. And you're going, that doesn't sound right. That's the point. God's mercy flows through the cross so powerfully that when we understand how totally sinful we are, we're going to look at who Jesus did and go, (laughs) what? And if you've never done that, it's because you've never really faced how dead you are. There's some lingering thought of heaven won't be heaven without me. God won't be merciful if he doesn't forgive me. You know where that comes from? You already know. The evil already inside you. God's grace is a gift. Christ's death on the cross is a gift. And to anyone who will come and will say, I believe in my heart, I confess with my mouth, Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. The Bible teaches the Holy Spirit will give us a new nature. And then the Christian life begins. And the struggle of a Christian life is that now I am alive to God and dead to sin. Now my heart is renewed. My mind is renewed. But I still live in a body of death. And I still see the old passions coming up in me. And I still have to go to war against them. But I know that's not me anymore. And it's tough. It's hard. But that's the Christian life. When Paul sits down to write about struggling with sin, it's one of the most confusing chapters in the Bible. You've probably tried to read it sometime, Romans 7, where he says, I don't understand the things I do. What I want to do, I don't do. What I do, I don't. I want to do, but I don't do it. And then when I wanted to do the stuff I did, I didn't do that. And I didn't want to do stuff, but I did it. And not doing what I wanted to do, I found out that what I wanted to do were the things I didn't want to do. So I did them. And you're going, it's not that confusing. You're right. It's worse. It really is worse. And his conclusion is I want to obey God and I can't. Why? His conclusion, I'm trapped in a body of death. Praise God for rescuing me. For when I wanted to do good, I found that evil was right beside me. Now, if you are a believer in the room and you've come to God in Christ. Don't leave here still living under the system of the law. If you've come to Christ by faith, as Paul says, don't be bewitched having begun by the Spirit. Will you now continue by the law? No. So when you come to God and you say, I don't feel it. My heart's not purely in it. I didn't do the right thing. I don't feel it enough. I should feel better. I mean, if God did all this stuff for me, I should be feeling more. If I don't feel more, I must not be a Christian. That's law. Quit it. Well, you don't have to quit it. But then just take your Bible and take this whole part out. Okay? Just do this part again. That's for you. Don't go here. That's ours. That's ours. You don't relate to God anymore based on your performance. That is works salvation. Your salvation is bought by Christ. You're adopted. You're sealed. You're in the Holy Spirit. You're made righteous. It's not based on your ability. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. You are adopted as children, seated at the table, seated in heaven with Christ. You are just left here for a while. You are already as much a citizen of heaven as you will ever be. You just don't see it yet. That's the Christian. The person who has said, my my good deeds won't save me. I need Christ to speak for me. I've put my trust in him. I put my faith in him. And I ask him to come and grant me the Holy Spirit to renew my mind, to renew my heart. And I will turn from sin as I see it. And I will go to war with the old nature as I see it. Not by my power, but by the grace he will give me. That's the Christian walk. We're going to close our service in just a moment. Some of our elders and their spouses will be come to the front. And if you're here this morning, and you come here, and your relationship with God is one of shame, and you run, and you don't want to go near Him, and you don't, you hate going to church because you feel condemned because you're not good enough, and you don't do enough good stuff, and you know you should be better. That's law. The only thing that will happen is you'll feel more and more convicted until finally you make sure that you never expose yourself to the things of God again because the conviction is so huge. If that's you, we would love to pray with you and tell you about the grace of God that's been given in Christ, how he will say you are forgiven and that's the end of the story. If you you would love to come pray with us, please come. If you're here with a friend and you're like, I'd rather talk with them on the way home or or somewhere to eat, great. Great. But know that Christ is God's gracious offer of salvation left on the table until the day of judgment. And on the day of judgment, everyone will be sealed in one of two things. The righteousness of Christ or their own actions, which will never save them. Would you stand and pray with me? Again, our elders and some of their spouses will be here to pray, but let's go to the Lord. Our Father God, you are good beyond all we could ask. Your grace is magnificent. Your salvation is a gift. It is a gift. It is not earned. It is not a wage. We do not receive salvation for services rendered. You bestow it. You go so far to tell your disciples, you didn't choose me, I chose you. God, I pray that you will set before us the gracious salvation you've offered. And I pray if there's anyone here who finds themselves relating to you based on their own abilities, that they would reject that paradigm and accept the gospel of salvation. Salvation by faith through grace. I believe and I trust and you keep your promises, God. I pray that there are those here now, even now that the Holy Spirit is speaking to them, saying, you must make this step or you will be lost. You must call Christ Lord. You must bow the knee. And God, I pray that you will use the Spirit to open their hearts to see it. Their reliance on themselves is the surest path to destruction, but bending the knee to you is guaranteed salvation. So for your name and your glory and for the supreme honor of our Savior, King Jesus, we pray these things in his holy name, in the name of Christ, in the name of our Savior. Amen.